Good morning, and please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is going to be a sermon where you are going to need to work hard, and this is going to be a sermon where I will commit to working hard. So let's work together this morning as we tackle a complex portion of Scripture together. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. As you're turning there, the year was 1854 when Hudson Taylor first arrived in China to begin his missionary work. He had been trained as a doctor and he intended to use that skill in order to minister to the hurting in China, but yet his all-consuming passion in this place was preaching the gospel among the Chinese people. Yet, after his first couple of years of ministry, he was deeply disappointed that his reception among the Chinese people had been so poor. And he began to realize that the Chinese people were under the impression that they needed to become British in order to become Christians. In other words, they thought that Christianity was intertwined with being foreign, specifically with being British. And so they called Taylor and his associates, quote, red-haired foreign devils, and they rejected largely their ministry. Hudson reflected on how this was taking place, and so here are the words of Hudson Taylor. He says, I am not uh, unusual in holding the opinion that the foreign dress and deportment of missionaries, the foreign appearance of the chapels, and indeed the foreign air given to everything connected with religion have very largely hindered the rapid dissemination of the truth among the Chinese. Hudson began to think very deeply about his missionary approach. And so he did something that was viewed as very radical in those days. The other expats thought that he was crazy, and the other missionaries actually scorned him. But Hudson shaved his head, and he began to grow the same pigtail that the rest of the Chinese men wore during that time. He adopted Chinese clothing, but not the clothing of the aristocracy. Instead, he wore the clothing of a humble schoolteacher. This meant that he wore very baggy pants, tied off firmly at the waist, with a jacket that was covered by a shirt with these long, puffy sleeves, and those shoes with those satin shoes with the toes that kind of curl up on the end. That's what Hudson wore. And he didn't stop at his clothing. He adopted Chinese customs, which meant that husbands and wives would avoid public displays of affection. It meant that none of them would walk down the streets like hurried New York City savages, but that they would walk slowly in the dignified Chinese way. Hudson began to eat Chinese food prepared in a Chinese way, and he would use Chinese utensils as he ate. He, he learned the Chinese language, and by the end of his life, he was fluent in four different Chinese dialects. But why? Why would Hudson Taylor act in these ways, especially when it welcomed the scorn of his fellow missionaries? Why would he grow a pigtail? Well, here's his own rationalization. After reflecting on the work of his missionary colleagues and how it felt so British and how he thought this was becoming an obstacle, here's what Hudson Taylor said. He said, but why? Why does such a foreign aspect need to be given to Christianity? The word of God does not require it, nor, I conceive, would reason justify it. 
It is not their denationalization, but their Christianization that we seek. And he goes on and he talks about his vision to see churches raised up that feel Chinese and look Chinese and sound Chinese, but they're Christian. And he goes on and he says, It is enough that the disciple be as his master, Jesus Christ. He continues, he says, If we really desire to see the Chinese such as I have described, let us as far as possible set before them a correct example. Let us in everything unsinful become Chinese, that by all things we may save some. Let us adopt their costume, acquire their language, study to imitate their habits, and approximate their diet as far as health and constitution will allow. Let us live in their houses, making no unnecessary alterations in external appearance. Eventually, Hudson Taylor began the China Inland Mission. And for a season, all CIM missionaries adopted the same strategy, and the Lord used them in their day to make many disciples and to establish many churches throughout China, their influence still being felt today in China. Friends, I want us to understand this morning that Hudson Taylor's decisions were not merely pragmatic. Yes, he desired to find something that would work for making disciples among the Chinese in particular, but these missionary decisions were boldly biblical. In fact, in defense of his own strategy, he alluded to this morning's passage, which I want us to read right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19-23. to 23. Here's what the Word of God says. For though I be free from all men... Yet have I made myself a servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law. Being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some, and I do this for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. I want to give you my main idea right away this morning. Main idea that I think is born out of this passage, and it is simply this. Christians, we should think like missionaries. Christians, we should think like missionaries. Now, now I think it's a bit sloppy to say we're all missionaries. Remember that children's song, Be a Missionary Every Day? I think that's a bit sloppy. That's a different sermon. But I think we should all agree that Christians, we are on a mission to make disciples as the Lord Jesus commanded after his resurrection. I think we can all agree that we are to be witnesses for Christ. And because of this, we should think like missionaries. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul gives us three components of a missionary mindset. Let's consider these together. Number one, if we will think like a missionary, number one, we must have a missionary goal. A missionary goal. Do you see this in the text with me? Scan back through the verses with your eyes. Notice how Paul says in verse 20, that I might gain the more. I'm sorry, verse 19, that I might gain the more. Verse 20, that I might gain the Jews, that I might gain them under the law. Verse 21, that I might gain them that are without the law. 22, that I might gain the weak, that I might save some. Paul wants to gain people. 
That's his goal. The word could be translated win. It means to acquire by effort or investment. And so Paul wants to exert a ministry effort. He wants to invest his life in order to gain people for Christ's future kingdom. Notice also how Paul ends the sequence. He says, to gain, to gain, to gain. He says it five times, and then he switches to that I might by all means save some. And so in our passage, gaining is parallel to saving. He wants to save people. A lot of Christians bristle against the language of of saving others. In fact, in prayer request time in one of your classes today, if you were to speak up and say, I've got a praise, I've I've been witnessing to my unsaved friend, and this week I saved them. Your classmates would look sideways at you. Someone would catch you after class and open their Bible and say, Brother, have you ever considered uh, Titus 3.5? Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us, right? It's true, friends, that God is the one who must save. None of us can save ourselves. We can't give life to our dead souls. We can't pay the penalty that our sins deserve. We can't raise our own dead bodies back to life again. We can't swap out hearts of stone for hearts of flesh. This is why God must be the Savior. But don't you think the Apostle Paul knows that better than we do? And he's the one that says, I might by all means save some. And so if God alone does the saving, then what do we do with passages where the apostles want to save others? Look back at chapter 1 for just a moment. Keep your finger in chapter 9 because Paul solves the riddle for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, he's talking about the limitations of human wisdom. It can only reason so far. It cannot reason to salvation. And so in 1 Corinthians 1, 21, Paul says, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by, by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Or it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. In other words, God does the saving, but He chooses to do it through humans who preach the Gospel. And this is Paul's missionary goal. He wants to win people for Christ. He wants to preach the Gospel in such a way that His saving message, which is ultimately God's saving message, that this leads to the salvation of those who would otherwise be lost and destined for hell. This is Paul's missionary mindset. I want to gain. I want to win. I want to save people. I can't help but think of one of my favorite stories, that of John Harper. Born in 1872, he began his ministry by walking up and down the streets of his neighborhood, pleading with neighbors to trust Jesus Christ for salvation. At age 24, he planted his first church in London, a work that soon became known for its passion for the gospel. Several years later, accompanied by his nine-year-old daughter, Harper set out uh, on a voyage across the Atlantic to preach for D.L. Moody in Chicago. On this journey... Their ship struck an iceberg. And tragically, you know the story, the Titanic began to sink. Harper got his daughter safely aboard a lifeboat and told her, I'll meet you on the other side. The rescue boats are coming. You take this spot. We'll be reunited soon. And Harper thereafter found himself 
floating in the icy Atlantic, clinging to a piece of debris, struggling for his life. And as he floated around, he encountered a young Scotsman. And he cried out, Man, are you saved? The Scotsman answered, No. Harper replied, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and and you'll be saved. The waves caused them to part for a time and, and soon they came back together with an earshot. And he said, Man, are you saved now? He said, no. And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and and you'll be saved. And as far as we know, those were Harper's last words. He lost hold on the debris and he disappeared below the icy waves to his grave. And years later, uh, in a church meeting, a young Scotsman stood up and said, I was John Harper's last convert. Can you say with Paul that your all-consuming life's goal, even to the end, is to win people? Do you have John Harper's burning passion that up until the very moment of your life, not counting your own life dear to yourself, that you want to win people, you want to save people? Notice some implications of this goal from verse 19. Paul wants to win more of them. While he never looked past the value of a single soul, he wanted his life to count maximally, in order to reach as many for Christ as possible. Uh, Notice also, uh, Paul the missionary recognizes he's not going to be able to reach them, and, and they won't all be saved. And so his ambition, verse 22, is to save some. He knows that the invitation is wide, but that the way is narrow that leads to eternal life. He knows that salvation is through faith in Christ, but he also knows not all men have faith, and not all men will come to faith. And so he wants to win as many people as he can, but he knows this won't be everyone. Notice also that Paul the missionary also desires to win every sort of person to Christ. His message is for all, verse 19. It's for Jews under the law, verse 20. It's for Gentiles outside the law, verse 21. It's for the weak, verse 22. Ultimately, it's for every sort of person. And so Paul's missionary goal is to reach all of them, every sort of person. And so college students, you're at this critical juncture of your life. What will your life's ambition be? Is there any space in your life ambition to adopt the ambition of Paul the missionary, which is to invest the effort of your life in order to win as many people to Christ as possible with all of the unreached peoples in the world today? Who in this gymnasium is going to go? If we'll think like missionaries, we must have Paul's missionary goal. Number two. We must adopt a missionary strategy. We must adopt a missionary strategy. He gives us four examples of his strategy. Look at verse 19, and we'll get to work on these. He says, For though I am free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. What does he mean by being a servant unto all? Well, if you look back in verses 1 through 18, he makes probably the most compelling case in all of Scripture as to why we should compensate ministers of the gospel. But then he goes on and explains why he has chosen not to receive such compensation. Look look at chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. He says, If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others are partakers of this power or this right over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power 
but suffer all things lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. And then in verse 18, he says, what's my reward? Verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge. And so Paul is free from all in verse 19 in the sense that he's not dependent upon any human uh, supporter. Instead, his ability to support himself makes him free to be slave to everyone so that he can win even more people to Christ. So here's what Paul is saying in verse 19. He's saying this. If receiving a salary is going to cause people to question my motives and reject my message, then I will give up the right to receiving a salary so that I can serve everyone without hindrance or obstacle. There's a second component of his strategy. Look at verse 20. Under the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them under the law, as one under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. Here Paul is saying, if adopting Jewish customs will help the gospel be received among the Jews, then I will gladly adopt those customs. If living within the narrow confines of Moses' law is going to help me reach people that live within such confines, then, then I can do that for the gospel. I can do that for people to be saved. And Paul did these things throughout his ministry. It's recorded in the book of Acts. In fact, at one key moment when Paul was going to begin a ministry trip in a significantly Jewish area, he wanted to take a young man named Timothy with him. And we read about this in Acts chapter 16. I'll read it for you. He came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain woman which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek. Him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew that his father was a Greek. So Paul knows that the ministry with Timothy is not going to be well accepted if those particular Jews know that Timothy is uncircumcised. Not to mention the fact that the Jews had been following him ever since Acts 14, accusing him of, of being against Moses' law, even trying to kill him. So he says, Timothy, it would make ministry a lot easier, a lot more well accepted if you would be circumcised. But did Timothy have to be circumcised? Was this a requirement of God? Of course not. In fact, you could say that Timothy had every right not to be circumcised. Because neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything with God, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Yet Timothy willingly sacrificed his right not to be circumcised and submitted to being circumcised as an adult because this sacrificial decision was going to serve the spread of the gospel with his life. And so Paul is saying this, if adopting Jewish customs will help the gospel be received by the Jews, then I will gladly adopt those customs. I can think of a time in my life when I witnessed this sort of thinking woefully absent from someone's missionary strategy. I was traveling from Kenya to Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, and I met a group of Christian college students from Ohio State. They were going to Dar es Salaam to do ministry, and so I'm, I'm talking with these guys, asking, well, what's your plan when you get to Dar es Salaam? How are you going to uh, approach your, your ministry there? And he told me, well, uh, up at Ohio State, we, uh, we get a pig and we roast it and we toss some Frisbees and then we start talking to the folks about Jesus. And so I, I think we're going to try that here. Well, bless your heart. I said, well, 
how do you think that's going to be received among all these Muslims? He said, there's Muslims around here? I'm not even kidding you. The name of the city is Dar es Salaam. It's a Muslim city. It had never occurred to them that they were going to go to a place where a pig roast would be highly offensive. This decision would not serve the advance of the gospel well. Now, is eating pork wrong or sinful? Of course not. Not in the New Testament age. But if not eating pork, for example, could somehow help me, a minister of the gospel, be less offensive to the people that I want to reach and that I want to win, as much as I love my bacon, I'll I'll, I'll gladly set that aside for what? For the spread of the gospel, for the sake of ministry, for the salvation of souls, something far more important. But there's more to Paul's missionary strategy. There's a third component. Look at verse 21. To them that are without the law is without the law. We'll come back to the parentheses. That I might gain them that are without the law. If those Jewish Jewish customs may hinder the gospel being received by Gentiles, then I will live more like a Gentile. For Paul, this wasn't so much of a sacrificed right, but maybe it was more of a sacrificed comfort zone. Remember who Paul was before he was converted. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. I'm sure, though, let's be honest here, after Paul had his first bacon-wrapped shrimp, he never looked back. I'm confident of that. But where do you think that Paul felt the most comfortable? In a Jewish synagogue, reasoning from the Scriptures to people that knew the law and largely accepted the law and lived like Jews like he was raised? Or do you think he was more comfortable in the Greek marketplace where pagan idols were sold and where immorality loomed? Clearly, Paul would have been more comfortable in a Jewish context, and he usually started there. But when the context was Gentile, Paul did not lead with his Jewishness, and he didn't feel the need to follow Moses' law in its entirety or the traditions at all. Case in point is Acts 17, when he preaches on Mars Hill in the ancient city of Athens, a place totally given over to idolatry. In this context, Paul didn't actually bring up Moses or the law at all. Instead, he confronted their idols. He spoke of creation, the the foolishness of idol worship, the need for repentance, and God's work of raising Christ from the dead. And in the midst of all of this, he even quoted a a Greek poet and a Greek philosopher, not because they are sources of divine authority, but because even these pagan writers could not escape God's truth and God's world. But there's even more to Paul's missionary strategy. Notice a fourth component. Verse 22. To the weak I became as weak, that I might gain the weak. What does Paul mean by weak here? Well, readers of 1 Corinthians know that there's two choices. Paul is either talking about brothers in in Christ who are weak in faith or weak in conscience, 1 Corinthians 8-10. through Or Paul is talking about weakness as a social status. The weak of this world. Look back at chapter 1 again, verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren... How that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world in order to confound the things which are mighty. Since the context of chapter 9 is evangelism, remember Paul wants to win people, he wants to save people, 
He's clearly not saying I've become weak in conscience or I've become a weaker brother, but rather Paul is saying that he has become like the weak in this world in order to win the weak of this world. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying if my high social status as a citizen of Rome, as a business owner, if you will, as a well-educated man, if my relatively high social status is going to wrongly cause people to think that the gospel is only for the elites of this world, then I will gladly adjust my standard of living and I will meet people where they are because I want people to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul may have come from a family of wealth because he was a Roman citizen trained at the feet of Gamaliel, but he never flaunted his status. In fact, being of high status could have alienated him from the very ones he wanted to reach, and so he willingly set his status aside in order for the gospel to run quickly to their hearts. And in this way, Paul's missionary strategy mirrors the humility of his Savior. Let me give you an illustration or an example of this. Becoming weak in order to reach the weak. How well do you think it would be received if an evangelist rolled into the housing projects of Chicago starting a new evangelistic ministry while driving a new shiny car, wearing a custom-tailored suit, a gold chain around his neck, and an expensive watch on his wrist. Well, three things would happen. First, that dude's about to get robbed. (laughs) Second, he may not be well-received. His message may not be heard. Some may assume that he just can't identify with the challenges of life in the neighborhood and that his religion is for suburbanites who have money. But a third thing, and far worse, may happen. Some may assume that if you receive this man's Savior, then you will also receive this man's what? This man's physical wealth. And so poor missionary strategy may actually play right into the hands of false prosperity gospels. You see, Paul's missionary strategy then culminates in this summary in verses 22 through 23. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some, and I do this for the gospel's sake. Friends, the main descriptions of this strategy then are flexibility and sacrifice. Flexibility where you can be flexible, sacrifice where you can sacrifice. Paul sacrificed his rights. He flexed to the situation. He was willing to step outside of his comfort zone. He was willing to change his manners, his lifestyle, and his approach. And so if we will think like missionaries here in our lives, in the here and now, we must have a missionary goal, a missionary strategy, and a third component is coming now, and it's very important. We must operate within missionary boundaries. We must operate within missionary boundaries. In other words, we want to see as many people saved as possible. We want to be as flexible as we can. But there are lines that cannot be crossed, even if our motives are good. Look back through the passage again. Verse 20. He wants to gain them that are under the law as one under the law. But he makes it clear he's not under the law. Verse 21, notice the parentheses. Being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ. He's not saying I'm a lawless man. I'm still a man under authority, the authority of Christ. And then notice the final phrase in verse 23, or or the first phrase in verse 23. I do this for the gospel's sake. I want to point out boundaries based on each of those three uh, items in the passage I've just directed your attention to. Boundary number one, we must preach the true gospel. 
There are many ways to preach the true gospel. You can talk about redemption from sin, drinking living water, light in darkness, being born again, being cleansed from sin, receiving a heart transplant. These are all ways of preaching the true gospel, but there's only one gospel. There's only one message that can actually save. It solves the problems of sin and God's just punishment for our sins. It centers on the person and work of Jesus Christ, His death on the cross for our sins, His resurrection for our justification. This gospel must be received through repentance and faith. It cannot be earned by good works. This is the only gospel message that can actually save anyone, and so we can't change it, soften it, or dilute it. If we'll think like missionaries, it's actually the messenger that's being changed, not the message. We change ourselves, that is, our manners and customs and diets and clothing. These things are all flexible, but we don't change the inflexible gospel. Paul warned about that in Galatians 1. If we or an angel from heaven come unto you and preach a gospel unto you other than we have preached, let him be anathema. So boundary one, we must preach the true gospel. Boundary two, And it's more subtle. We cannot add to the requirements of salvation. Verse 20. Paul can happily live according to Jewish customs. But yet he always remembers that he is no longer under Moses' law. He implies that strongly in verse 20. He teaches that emphatically in the rest of his writings. He wants to be flexible on things like diet and circumcision and rituals. However, he cannot insinuate even for a moment that he believes those things are required for salvation. And so he cannot insinuate even for a moment that anyone else must do these things because there's freedom in Christ. He's free to adopt Jewish customs, and he's free not to. He has chosen to do them for the sake of the spread of the gospel. But the very moment that others choose to do these same things in order to gain salvation... That's when Paul jumps off this train of flexibility because he cannot go that far or even imply that anyone can go that far. He thought it was wise for Timothy to be circumcised. But notice what he says when others think that getting circumcised is going to justify them or save them. Galatians chapter 5, verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. You want to go a salvation through the faith plus circumcision route? Well, then you are a debtor to keep the whole law. And so Paul is flexible. Even he'll adopt Jewish customs until someone says those customs are a genuine God-ordained requirement for this age. Third boundary, we cannot sin in order to try to save people. Paul can live like a Gentile to an extent, but he is not free to break the law of Christ. Do you see that in verse 21? He doesn't want us to think for a moment that just because he's free from Moses' law, that he's a man without law. He's not under the law of Moses, but he's still under the law of Christ. And so his missionary strategy does not allow him to break the law of Christ in order to win people to Christ. That's nonsense. Young people, please realize that our God is not so small that we have to disobey his commands in order to fulfill his mission. He's not that small. And so we come full circle to Hudson Taylor who adopted this strategy. Let us in everything unsinful become Chinese, that by all things we may save some. Christians, we must think like missionaries. Here, 
now with our lives. I want to give you just very quickly rapid-fire application and we'll be done. You can write these down. They'll be rapid-fire. Number one, in our efforts to win as many people to Christ as possible, we must never sacrifice obedience to God's word or dilute the gospel. This means we cannot disobey Christ by partnering with doctrinally compromised organizations in order to spread the gospel. We cannot disobey Christ by changing the purpose of our Sunday church worship services in order to reach more people. We can't succumb to the temptation to try to make the gospel more palatable to lost people in order to try to win more people. No, we cannot disobey Christ in order to win more people. Second application. In our efforts to win as many people to Christ as possible, we must seek to cultivate relationships with the lost. This whole passage presupposes that Paul knows people. And he knows what they think, and he's talked to them. That he knows people under the law, and he knows people outside the law. That he knows people that are of low socioeconomic status, and he knows people of high socioeconomic status. This passage just pushes us outside of our Christian bubbles to know people and talk to people and make friends with people in order to win them to Christ. Third, in our efforts to win as many people to Christ as possible, use understandable language. Do you know how much we speak Christianese in our, in our talk? You, you, be born again. Be redeemed. Be justified. And a lost world that's never even read the Bible is like, what are you people even talking about? I have to go do language training in order to... Under, no, use biblical words, but define them. You must be born again, and here's what Jesus means by that. In John chapter 3, let's study it. Fourth, in our efforts to win as many people to Christ as possible... Avoid unnecessary offenses. I was not born in Wisconsin. I was born in beautiful Knoxville, Tennessee. But I've been here since I was 18. So I've had to learn to think like a missionary. Let let me ask you this. Would it serve the gospel well here in Wisconsin if I stood up in my church and said, I hate the Packers. The Brewers are horrible. Tailgating is boring. Brats are disgusting. Door County is expensive and overrated. And who's ever seen a badger? I mean, how is that even your mascot? If I thought any of those things, it would be better for me just to keep my mouth shut, wouldn't it? Friends, the gospel is offensive enough. Let the cross of Christ be the stumbling block. Have as few hobby horses as possible. Try not to be known as the most opinionated person on every issue. And love people. And bring the gospel to them in the context of a relationship. Fifth and last, in our efforts to win as many people to Christ as possible, we must not subtly add to the requirements of being a Christian. The early mission of Hudson Taylor and the other missionaries had become so confused with the activities of the British Empire that Hudson knew he had to do something. He had to intentionally disentangle the reputation of Christ from the reputation of the Queen. He had to disentangle the reputation of Christianity from Imperial Great Britain so that the Chinese people would understand that receiving Christ is a different matter altogether than becoming British. They're different categories. You do not have to become an American. And you do not have to become a card-carrying Republican to become a Christian. Yes, our faith will have implications for how we vote. I understand that. But these are different categories. So Paul says, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. 
Young people, what would happen in Watertown, in Wisconsin, and your home communities if you went home this summer and if you decided to spend the rest of your life thinking like a missionary? Father in heaven, we thank you that your son Jesus came to this earth, that he took on a human body and a human nature, and he lived among us as one of us, and he died on the cross to redeem us, and that he rose again, that he's ascended to your right hand, and he has given us a mission to accomplish, to make disciples of all the nations, to baptize them, and to teach them to obey everything that your son has commanded us. Father, I pray that even from this room, you would stir people up on this mission. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.